0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the very last podcast of 2015. I can't believe the year has absolutely flown by. This week, I'm going to be taking a look back at some of the scientific accomplishments of autism research. We're calling this Autism's Year of the Female, and I'm sure you understand why. This was an unprecedented year for autism research, with many significant advances that will improve the lives of people with autism, Just last week, for example, the CDC reported a five-month decrease in the age at which children are first being evaluated for autism. This means families, pediatricians, care providers are all learning the signs, acting earlier, and hopefully starting intervention services earlier, too. In 2015, we've changed the way we think about females with autism – We gained a better understanding of the underlying genetic causes of autism in both men and women, and made important progress in both behavioral and medical interventions for some of the symptoms. So here's a summary of the year's most significant findings. First, researchers are expanding their attention beyond boys with autism to the girls and the women. More males are diagnosed with autism than females, that's just a fact. But this means that fewer females participate in research, So some scientific conclusions only apply to males, and in some cases females are not even studied because the assumption is that it's a male disorder. This has disadvantaged the understanding of females with autism considerably. Luckily, this was a year that science challenged the assumptions that autism is a strictly male disorder. The journals and news outlets are catching on to a special need to look at females with autism. For example, a special issue of Molecular Autism was published that include many groundbreaking studies on females with autism, including studies involving early behavior, genetics, and brain structure. A special issue of the journal Autism also invited submissions this year, and they'll be published either in 2016 or 2017. Also, Spectrum News compiled a summary of what is known about females with autism, from basic science to specific challenges seen in females with autism. It includes both scientific reports and really beautiful essays written by women on the spectrum. So what did scientific research reveal in 2015? First, the brains of girls with autism are different than boys with autism, specifically in regions relating to language function and the way that different regions of the brain connect to each other. You can see differences in the size of the corpus callosum in kids with autism even before a diagnosis, and researchers now believe they may help explain why some of the symptoms are different in males and females. The corpus callosum consists of neural fibers that connect the left and the right sides of the brain. Very early signs of autism may also be different in boys and girls, but they're subtle and young boys and girls with autism may be more similar than different. These overt differences may not emerge until later on in life. Findings from the study of molecular signatures in the brains of males and females with autism are hard to interpret because of the number of female brains with autism to study. This sex bias in autism diagnosis is reflected by a scarcity of biological samples, including brain tissue from females with autism. That's why we're asking if you're a woman with autism or a parent of a girl with autism, please consider registering for the Autism Brain Net. It's easy, and registrants receive regular updates on why this is so important. But it's not just the girls with autism bringing attention to research and sex differences. It's every member of the family. For example, families in which there is more than one person diagnosed or a female with autism tend to show higher levels of autism symptoms, both in those diagnosed and in siblings that aren't diagnosed. Also, girls with autism show more genetic mutation than boys with autism. Together, these findings suggest a protective factor in which females have something that protects them against some of the symptoms that boys have, or the symptoms to just be flat out different. Therefore, researchers have started expanding the scope of research from just the affected individual and parents to all family members so that susceptibility and protective measures can be uncovered. Earlier this year, based on this need, earlier this year the Autism Science Foundation launched a new initiative based on the need of undiagnosed females called the Autism Sisters Project. And you can learn more about it at www.autismsciencefoundation.org. Another thing we learned this year is that it's not just about the diagnosis itself. It's about symptomatology. One of the questions that plague clinicians who make an autism diagnosis is the degree to which symptoms may change over time, both in the short term and the long term. There were two separate studies, both published this year, which followed infants with a high probability of a later diagnosis that showed that if a diagnosis was given to a toddler at 18 months, this diagnosis stuck later on in life. So it's pretty stable. However, that doesn't mean that the threshold for a diagnosis is always met at 18 months, as a proportion of the children who were not diagnosed at 18 months were diagnosed at 3 years. Those that received a diagnosis later still showed some of the core symptoms of autism, but tended to have a higher language ability and lower severity of autism symptoms before they got the diagnosis. There were distinct patterns across time in each of these groups, reinforcing the variability in the presentation of symptoms, as well as providing data on how symptoms develop over time. These findings, as you can imagine, have enormous clinical importance, as primary care doctors need to continue to monitor children who show early signs and symptoms, but may not meet all of the criteria of diagnosis. However, while the diagnosis is stable after age three or four, This doesn't necessarily mean that delays or impairments stay the same forever. Canadian researchers followed children with autism from age two to age six and tracked their cognitive ability and their ability to function in daily life. This is called adaptive behavior. They found out that how children started out didn't necessarily predict how they fared later on, as most children with an intellectual disability at age two didn't have the same cognitive impairments at age six. While adaptive behavior was more stable, 20% showed improvements in adaptive behavior in the years after the initial diagnosis. These findings show that autism changes and sometimes improves. These results underscore that in addition to monitoring autism symptomatology, there's a need to address how children with autism function overall. Due to a lack of funding, researchers studying infants who have a high likelihood of an autism diagnosis tend to stop their studies when participants are three years old. However, a few projects are able to follow families through school age, and the findings may likely alter the way we think about people with autism. For example, in one of these studies at the University of California, Davis, children with and without an autism diagnosis by age three were evaluated until they turned 11. The researchers looked beyond autism and found a higher rate of ADHD symptoms, especially in girls. ADHD and autism often occur together, so while there are different disorders, they may be diverging roads from the same highway. This year, there was also better understanding of underlying genetic causes and to throw in there new information about what's called epigenetic mechanisms, and I'll get to that in a minute. Most of these findings have been coming from identifying specific genes through the study of what's called de novo mutations. So, de novo mutations are newly occurring changes in DNA that are only in the parent sperm or egg cell. So they're passed on and they're present in every cell in the child's body, but you don't see them in the parent's blood. So when you see them in the child's blood, they look new. A new study this year of these de novo mutations brought together new and previously published data from over 5,500 families and identified a total of 65 genes with a strong evidence for a role in autism risk. This study also confirmed and replicated things like girls carry a greater genetic burden than boys. And also, it found that these de novo mutations play an even important role in children with high IQ. Previously, it had thought that it was just children with low IQ that had these de novo mutations. And finally, it also highlighted the importance of genes that affect synaptic function and chromatin modification. These investigators also found interesting that large copy number variations, such as those found on chromosome 16, are very likely to carry many risk genes each with modest risk, rather than one single smoking gun gene on this area of the chromosome. These findings contribute to the global pictures of the genetic underpinnings of autism, which has become more clear in the past few years. Several papers have shown that variations that are common in the population play a role in autism, in fact carrying most of the risk. This is called the common variation theory. Common variation accounts for most of the genetic risk in autism for the entire population, However, the vast majority of individuals do not have symptoms. It's thought that most people with autism have multiple common variations, which increase the risk for autism. On the other hand, there's an important role for what are called rare mutations that can affect a nucleotide in a key autism gene, and these also play a major contributory role. In addition to these de novo mutations and common risk alleles, A recent study from Boston highlighted the contribution of a different type of mutation. This one's called a somatic mutation. So I mentioned earlier that most of the mutations come from the parent sperm and egg and are found in all cells in the body. Well, looking at the brains of people with autism, this research group found that there are somatic mutations in autism in the brain. And these are mutations that only occur in the brain and nowhere else. The only way we're able to see these is through the study of brain tissue, and it's another call for people to register for the autism brain net. But the genetic influence of autism is not just limited to the sequence of A's and C's and G's in the code of DNA or the structure of the chromosomes. A growing body of literature is demonstrating that the epigenetic code, or the code that influences how genes are turned on and turned off, may be just as important. As environmental factors target these epigenetic markers, this is part of the missing link in understanding gene-environment interactions in autism. One of the reasons geneticists don't understand the epigenetics is that there was no human epigenome project to mirror the 2003 Human Genome Project. This is surprising considering doctors are sure that the epigenome contributes to disorders like diabetes, cancer, and disorders with a high prevalence of autism like Angelman's and Prader-Willi. This year was important for epigenetics research because a group of researchers published a map of 111 epigenetic markers in the genome from over 183 types of cells. And even more importantly, all the data has been made publicly available for the other researchers to study. This is called the human epigenome map, the mirror to the human genome map that's allowed research to progress so quickly in the area of genetics and disease. So this advance will definitely increase the pace and productivity of the science around epigenetics and autism. In 2012, a gene called CHD8 was reported to increase autism risk. This gene affects chromatin remodeling, or the way how DNA is kept tightly wound, which has an effect on when and where genes are expressed, or if they're turned on and off. So if you think about it, you have a long, long strand of DNA. It needs to be tightly wound in the chromosomes for it to fit. And that's part of what CHD8 does. So if the gene is disrupted, the DNA can't express itself properly. This year, geneticists really started to look at what this gene did, and they found that it regulated expression of many autism risk genes during fetal development. This information makes CHD8 a more interesting gene to understand the bigger picture of brain development in autism. Scientists agree that in the next phase of genetic research, discovery of new genes is going to be matched with figuring out what they do and how they work together. Another mechanism involved in epigenetics is methylation. This is the attachment of methyl groups to different parts of the DNA sequence that again turns on or turns off gene expression. In a high-risk sibling studies, Fathers of a child with autism showed methylation patterns in sperm that were similar to that seen in the cerebellum of people with autism. This is kind of a direct link to show that this altered methylation may contribute to autism risk. Other evidence from gene-environment interactions come from copy number variations, where gene sequence is duplicated, so there's too much of the, the product, or they're deleted, so there's little of the product. Copy number variations contribute to autism risk But why are they more often seen in people with autism is still understudied. By looking at environmental factors, this year research discovered that maternal infection, which is an independent risk for autism, interacts with the occurrence of these copy number variations to increase autism symptoms. This finding is a direct demonstration about how environmental factors can increase risk through genetic mechanisms. So we talked about genes as a big topic. But let's talk about how single gene mutations can help people with autism. In addition to more recent discoveries of de novo mutations identified in typical autism cases, there's a long history of studies of what's called syndromic forms of autism. As more data has accumulated, the distinctions between these groups is becoming less clear. But in general, there are genes that have been associated with autism as well as other characteristics that have been considered syndromic. This is like the Fragile X protein causing Fragile X or the SHANK gene causing Phelan-McDermid. These are also sometimes described as single gene causes of autism because some of these disorders like Phelan-McDermid or Fragile X, a lot of these people have an autism diagnosis as well. In the big picture, these single gene forms of autism account for a relatively small proportion of all autism cases. However, they do tell us that these forms can lead to discoveries that impact all types of autism. A recent analysis of the SHANK gene, known as the Phelan-McDermid syndrome gene, showed that mutations of different types of the SHANK gene are seen across the spectrum of individuals with autism, both with those with high IQ and lower IQ and everything in between. In other words, this gene doesn't just show up in those with a certain phenotype. One type of mutation shows up in about 2% of individuals with autism. So therapies that were developed for failing McDermott syndrome may be helpful in treating different types of autism. Understanding the role of these genes in pathology also helps understanding the course and symptoms of the disorder. For example, using brain tissue of people with autism with or without a specific mutation on chromosome 15, neuropathologists showed that there were fewer and smaller neurons in the auditory brainstem, a part of the brain crucial for hearing and distinguishing sounds. These cellular deficits are more severe in those with this this mutation on chromosome 15. But the fact that they are present in both groups suggests that there's a common mechanism between auditory problems and autism symptoms. And it could point to other common solutions between the two. Last year, a study reinforced the importance of a type of immune cell in the brain called microglia in autism neurobiology. This year, a study found that a regulator of microglia activity the mglur 5 receptor, is less active in brain tissue of people with autism. This receptor is also known to be a key target in Fragile X syndrome, and together, the data advances the idea that microglia may help control the shape and size of neurons. When microglia are overactive, this process goes awry and leads to disorders of plasticity like autism. The discovery has already led to more research on the role of microglia in cellular processes with the hopes that it will be a feasible target. As I mentioned before, new genes that contribute to autism are being discovered all the time. And it's amazing that families are using the power of social media like Facebook to find each other. And what was once an interesting finding in one family is turning into a syndrome. For example, earlier this year, mutations in a gene called DYRK1A, a gene where too many copies is associated with Down syndrome, showed that not enough of this gene is associated with a very specific form of autism. A number of research and advocacy groups have now banded together to improve research in an area where there is a known genetic cause to autism. It's called the Genetically Determined Autism Advocacy Council. And we hope, in addition to the groups that are already there, is that as some of these patient advocacy groups that are forming after discovery of a new gene, that they'll be able to join us as well. The big question is whether the genetic forms of autism have a hope to be treated. A few years ago, a completely revolutionary study showed that replacing a deficient gene in Rett syndrome reversed the symptoms in a mouse model. This year, the disorder that is produced by too much of the gene involved in Rett syndrome, MECP2, was also reversed using targeted gene technologies. Similar modifications in the activity of a gene that's in that area of chromosome 15 that I mentioned earlier have been shown in animal models. While it is way too early for a clinical trial in humans, reversal of the behavioral and cellular phenotype in individuals with Rett syndrome and dup 15 opens the door to targeted gene interventions being available for multiple causes of autism, even long after behavioral features have been presented. This year was also really important for discoveries and treatment, and it wasn't just about what you should be doing, it's about what you shouldn't be doing. So, many years ago, the very first randomized clinical trials on early interventions were conducted. The results of those projects on some of the early markers of behavior at around the age of diagnosis were published. They were mostly positive, but none of them really showed improvements on the core symptoms of autism. Earlier this year, researchers at the University of Washington reported that by six years of age, children who had participated in the Early Start Denver model not only maintain the gains they attained through this intervention early on, but continue to make improvements in the core symptoms of autism. So in terms of what families should be doing, early interventions continue to be filed under the do category. There were some interesting findings relating to pharmacological interventions for autism. The hormone oxytocin, otherwise known as the love hormone, had previously been shown to benefit individuals with autism when administered in in clinics where you have an IV drip. This IV drip is really not feasible in most real-world settings, so researchers studied whether or not they could use a nasal spray. As it turned out, it worked. There were some mild improvements in some social behaviors of autism. Even though they were mild, this is worth following up in additional studies where other interventions are also controlled for as well. Just as important to find things that help people is data that shows of things that don't always help people. For example, many parents of children with autism turn to dietary interventions like the gluten-free, casein-free diet. I should say that some children with and without autism have gluten sensitivities, and in this case, the diet's a good idea. But other parents just don't know where else to turn, and this diet has received enough anecdotal claim that they're willing to give it a try, even if their child does not have a gluten sensitivity. But many cases of this study, there's a large placebo effect, meaning parents really, really want an effect so much that they unknowingly exaggerate the improvement of the behavior, and they don't even do it knowingly. They do it completely subconsciously. Just by being on the diet, they're hoping that their children are going to make gains, and therefore they see the gains being made. I think that the placebo effect is an important thing. I think it's a good thing, but it's important to distinguish the placebo effect from a real clinical effect. So very few rigorous research studies were able to investigate the effect on autism, controlling for this placebo effect that was until this year. Using a study design that allowed children to eat either gluten and casein-free containing foods or these same foods without gluten and casein, not knowing what they were or their caregivers knowing what they were, the clinicians, when they compared the two groups, didn't see any improvement in autism behaviors. This casts doubt on the utility of the gluten-free, casein-free diet for the treatment of autism symptoms, but if you or your child are monitored by a dietitian and a doctor, the diet doesn't seem to be harmful. Finally, the world of behavioral interventions was completely turned on its ear earlier this year with a study challenging one of the most common procedures in applied behavioral analysis, repetition. In repetition, a stimulus is presented over and over again to facilitate learning. However, researchers studying repetition in individuals with high cognitive ability and autism found that too much of this repetition actually impaired the ability for them to learn new things. The implications are clear when it comes to repetition in some people with autism, especially those with high cognitive ability, maximize with moderation. And what is all this scientific study if you can't actually apply it to people in the community? Understanding the early signs and symptoms of autism in the clinic, for example, has significantly advanced practice in the pediatrician's office. This year, the same group of researchers that provided data to enforce early screening for all children with autism challenged primary care providers to look even more closely and take even more action for those with a suspected diagnosis. In addition, in the face of the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force ambiguity on the importance of universal screening for autism, this group of clinicians continued to urge autism-specific tools to identify autism at 18 and 24 months. Finally, they urge culturally appropriate interventions that involved all family members. As I mentioned earlier, a number of rigorous studies examining the effectiveness of parent-mediated intervention have reinforced the benefits of these types of interventions on social, emotional, and behavioral domains. Reducing behavioral problems in those with autism is a huge concern of parents. And to look at it, there was a large randomized clinical behavioral intervention studies on behavioral issues. It compared parent training to parent intervention. There were improvements in these behavioral problems in both groups, but parent training was clearly superior. After six months of treatment, children in the parent training group showed a 48% improvement on parent ratings of disruptive behavior compared to a 32% decline for parent education, and 70% of those in the parent training group saw an overall positive response by a clinician. The data is encouraging, but data on standardized, objective measures of outcome showed modest improvements in behavior. The study reinforces the value of parent training models to improve outcomes, and other research in the past year has focused just on the right way to train parents. This means making sure parents are getting the right support and feedback they need and delivering the interventions in the way they were meant to be given. This is clearly important as the ultimate goal of developing a behavioral intervention is to make sure it can be shared with the children in a variety of settings under a variety of circumstances, not just in a university clinic. Also important is that the level at which these parent-driven interventions produce improvements to make a difference clinically, not just in a statistical analysis. Another important component of understanding what interventions will work for individuals with autism is knowledge about the type of behavioral characteristics that match well with different types of intervention. This is almost like the golden chalice. These are called moderators of outcome. In addition to things like IQ at the start of intervention, clinicians now know that vocabulary and ability to intentionally communicate during the toddler years can later predict outcome. These moderators should now be incorporated into personalized decisions made about what type of interventions will lead to the best chance of improvements in different people and will better inform treatment decisions. Teaching children with autism as a way to exchange knowledge may not always be effective, as those children with autism without cognitive impairment still don't always grasp the intentions of teaching. This may call for alternative models in learning and teaching in those with autism. So all of this science is great, but what about getting the services that it studies paid for? As it turns out, getting insurance mandates in place doesn't solve all the challenges around making sure families receive appropriate care. Although I wanna state clearly, this is an important and needed step that needs to be taken. If you can't afford services and nobody will pay for them, then certainly they're not gonna work. Now that they're being paid for, Thanks to the great work of the autism advocacy community, including you, now we need to see how they need to be improved. Researchers at the University of Pennsylvania revealed, forcing insurance companies to pay for services increases the demand, creates new problems. The efforts of insurance mandates is an important and crucial first step to providing much-needed services for families, but should be followed up by incentives to increase the workforce and the infrastructure. This is just a sampling of some of the 2015 research that's made an impact on the science of autism. I know science can be incremental. It's slow. But each year there is progress. There's progress in the way that scientists think or how the community manages autism. I'd really like to hear from you. Could you send me your thoughts or your comments or your suggestions or even your criticisms to me at A-H-A-L-L-A-D as in dog, A-Y, at AutismScienceFoundation.org. I would love to hear from you. And to end this podcast, I'm going to turn it over to Allison Singer, who has some great news about some of the wonderful publicity Autism Science Foundation is getting around some of the recent news just this week. Our Facebook page runneth over. That's because our chief science officer, Dr. Alicia Halliday, host of this podcast, kicked it in the media this week. Newsweek called her for her take on the new study showing that SSRIs taken during pregnancy could increase risk for autism, and Health Day, which syndicates to newspapers and blogs all over the country, called for her opinion of the new Harvard study linking levels of the neurotransmitter GABA to levels of functioning in people with autism. Also, New Scientist magazine published a profile of Alicia's work as program officer for the new Autism Sisters project. And Spectrum News published an item highlighting her work with the Autism Brain Net. Thank you, Alicia. When we hired you in 2014, we included it as one of our top accomplishments of the year. And all of your great work is certainly among our top accomplishments of 2015. Have a great holiday break, everyone.